4th of December. December has started. Second candle of Advent is lit. Yeah, how far along have you really come? We have, many of us who were here earlier today, we have shared a meal in celebration of Advent. We have decorated the church. We have sung Advent songs. Yet how long must we still wait? Many of us have started decorating our houses. Those of us who are better planners uh, maybe have done their Christmas shopping already. And those of us who aren't just got nervous because I reminded you. The shops in the city, they are bright with Christmas lights. Yet how much is there still to do? Advent season is, after all, a season of waiting and a season of preparing, isn't it? But waiting for what? And preparing for what exactly? I guess it depends. It depends on our historical perspective. It depends on our spiritual perspective. It depends on, our perspective, on the perspective of our faith. And it might very well depend on our perspective of each other. But let's not rush ahead of things. Let us talk first of more obvious things. And how obvious they are might, again, depend on your cultural and your religious tradition. The word Advent, after all, is not exactly popular vernacular all over the place. It's not a, a word you hear being thrown around all over. Right? It is a churchy word uh, that in some places of the world, mostly countries where churches of certain theological strands have sort of cozied up to the state over a very long period of time. Uh, and then they have become also part of the vocabulary surrounding a certain time of the year, right? Christmas time. That's definitely the case in Norway, uh, where you will hear the word Advent maybe thrown out in the TV or whatever or in shops and Advent calendars and all that stuff. But whether you first heard the word in a faith context, right, or came to know it through the media or through school or your first hearing of it today, very likely the first thing that you associate with the word Advent is quite simply that, that Christmas is coming. And that's it, right? You hear the word Advent, Christmas is coming. And that's it. The very way that we actually define the Advent season in the, in the church calendar, right? In the liturgical calendar of churches, it enforces that first understanding, right? We count four Sundays back from Christmas, and that's where we start the countdown. That's actually when the new year starts in the church calendar, right? We have like a circular year. It starts with that, and then we light the first candle. That's how we do it. So on the first layer, let's call it that, and for most practical reasons, that is what Advent is for us. It is the time in which we start more actively and purposefully talking about and preparing for Christmas. And that's, that's fine. That's, that's what it is. But if we then bother to 
think about Christmas was what Christmas is all about. And I strongly suggest that as a Christian community of faith, we kind of should. Uh, then we start touching something of the deeper, or perhaps I would rather say wider, meaning of Advent. See, wider, because it's not like it can't be deep to prepare for the Christmas that is coming, but there's more, right? There's the wider meaning of Advent, because Christmas is as those of us who are here know, it is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Christ Mass. The celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Perhaps it's worth bringing to our attention, by the way, that Christmas isn't necessarily on the 25th of December for everyone. Different churches, different church traditions have celebrated the birth of Christ on different dates. Uh, for many Eastern and Orthodox churches, for example, it is in the beginning of January. Uh, and that, of course, also affects the liturgical celebration of Advent, when it starts and that kind of thing. But the date is really less important than the fact that that is what we celebrate. We celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So Advent is the season of expectation, of preparation for celebrating that, as St. John puts it, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That the light came into the darkness. It's part of the image that I always bring to mind when we do this, right? As, as Christmas comes closer, there's more and more light as we prepare to celebrate the coming of the light of the world into the darkness, into the world. Getting ready for Christ. And then we start getting into this wider perspective, right? Because getting ready for Christ is not just a matter of collective memory. It's part of it. We're, we're telling the foundational stories of our faith. And we're remembering them. And we're getting ready to celebrate. But getting ready for Christ is not just a matter of collective memory. It is also a matter of future. It is also a matter of looking forward, of casting hope. And this has to do not simply with the question of how we cultivate this memory and how we cast it into the future and make sure that it is, you know, that the story carries on. It has also and very much to do so with the fact that our faith is not merely the faith of the incarnate Son of God, but it is also the faith of the resurrected and risen Jesus Christ. It's the faith of the, of the God child in the crib, in the manger, and it is also the faith of the crucified Christ and of the risen Christ. And already in the pages of the Gospels, we see the beginning of the development of a new way of understanding the coming of Christ. Right? A way that had not only a sense of past realization, but a sense of future coming. A future coming. And this development it emerges from the words of Jesus himself who starts talking about his death, something that his followers weren't quite ready or willing to accept, and talking about his resurrecting and his coming again. 
And it emerges also from the need of his followers to account for the unexpected turn of events to which they were witnesses. You see, they had understood Jesus to be the fulfillment of the Jewish hope of the coming Messiah, the anointed one of God. We have Jesus asking his disciples, so who do you say I am? You are the Messiah. But rather than install a political religious rule to bring stability to the, to, the, to the Jewish kingdom and to overthrow the oppressor, Jesus then starts speaking of God's kingdom in subversive ways. And then he goes ahead and he gets himself killed by Roman authorities. And I say get himself killed because Jesus did stuff that I mean, you didn't have to be very smart to know that authorities were going to be ticked off, both the religious and the Roman authorities. And then he raises from the dead, right, against all odds, and in the midst of despair, he raises from the dead. But rather than parade his resurrection power to the crowds and subdue the Roman authorities, he sort of withdraws his physical body presence from his followers and tells them to start living his kingdom and his presence among themselves in the middle of history. In expectation, in anticipation, and in daily realization of his coming again and in an even more transforming kind of fulfillment. Now, if all of this seems difficult to grasp and wrap our minds around, it's because it is. It is. And it was in the pages of the scriptures itself and in the first centuries and throughout history. No one was quite ready for this. And the early church had to figure out a way, a way of living a faith that both celebrated the coming of Christ and expected his coming. Getting ready for Christ is, in the Christian tradition of faith, it is past, it is present, and it is future. And in the development of this theology, of ways of speaking about this, right? Of ways of understanding it, there is a word that has played an important role, and it's the Greek word parousia. Parousia. And if you grew up in certain theological traditions, you might even have heard that word before and associated it directly with what came to be known as the second coming, right? In many theological traditions, that's immediately what you think about. Parousia, second coming. And that is the expectation, right? The second coming is this expectation of a day in which Christ will again reveal himself in bodily form and there will be a kind of a wrapping up of the history of redemption and the dawn of an era of perfect peace, love, and fulfillment of life. But though the word parousia is used in a few New Testament texts directly associated with this notion of a second coming or of a return of Christ in some way, it is not the only way in which it is used. And it's quite interesting, I find, to think about the etymological meaning of the word. Because it is a compound Greek word from the words para, which means 
presence or even alongside, to be alongside. And the word osia, which is a derivation of the word for essence or to be, right? To think the, word, the verb to be in English. So it's in its most direct understanding, the word parousia means to be present or to be alongside, to be alongside. And that is it. That is it. That is not only the theological question, but the question permeating the life of faith of the early church. The expectation for the life where Christ is present, where God is present alongside us. The expectation for the life where Christ is present alongside us. And this has, for the Christian community of faith, it has a past dimension with incarnation. As Eugene Peterson translates St. John, right? The word became fleshed and moved into the neighborhood. It has a past dimension and it has a future dimension with the expectation of a fullness of that presence. And it has a present dimension, which more and more became the question of the daily life of faith. You see, initially, the Christian faith was a, a very apocalyptic sort of faith in the sense that they understood themselves to be at the dawn of the end of times and very much thought that this was just around the corner. And in the very pages of the New Testament, we see the church starting to have to grapple with uh, the fact that this was not happening quite as quick as they thought. We see that in Pauline theology very clearly, in the theology of Paul, right? So very soon, they realized that this then of the past and this then of the future, both were distancing from that. And they had to develop a faith that asks for, yearns for, and seeks to express the presence of Christ then, now, and hereafter. Throughout history, throughout time, but also very much now. And when the presence of the Spirit is manifested in the way it is in, in Acts, suddenly that presence has to be worked out in the living life of the community of faith. A community of faith that asks for, yearns for, and seeks to express the presence of Christ then now and hereafter, which is a community of faith that prays our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why am I bringing the Lord's Prayer into this? Well, St. Matthew, the gospel writer, he places the teaching of what came to be known as the Lord's Prayer in the midst of the so-called Sermon on the Mount, right? Which is this 
dense compilation of Jesus' teaching that deeply challenges faith to be utterly present in the world where we live, die, love, and hurt each other. Right? And in the middle of that, he has Jesus saying, and I read from Matthew 6, from verse 9 to 15, saying, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it really is a, a prayer for those who follow Him to pray. And we have to make sure we get that, right? It lands it on lived life in the Sermon on the Mount. And with that, you know, this is to be lived out. If you forgive, this is happening, right? And very early in, in the history of the church, this prayer was taken up as a as sort of an outline for prayer, a sort of a vessel to be filled with, lived life as it was shaped and transformed by the faith of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and the hope therein. So in line with the prayer traditions of the Jewish faith in which the early Christian movement was immersed, this prayer was not merely to be remembered and not merely to be repeated, but it was to be filled up with lived life in a daily insistence of casting hope towards the future and insisting on the presence of Christ today. We see that in the writings of the early church. We see that in the Jewish traditions of prayer that, that shape how the community of faith used the Lord's Prayer. In other words, a prayer of adventing, if I can make up such a word. Right? A prayer of adventing, of inviting us for a life of adventing. <laughs> and so today... As we celebrate Advent together, I want to invite you into a life of faith and prayer that overflows the constraints of the Advent season in our calendars. And if this is one of the most unifying prayers of the Christian faith, how can we pray it today? In other words, how can we live out our Christian faith today in such a way that we cast hope into the future and insist on the presence of God today? And aren't those the very difficult questions? Hope. And presence. Isn't that what feels like it, it's about to throttle us when we see the news and when we engage with the world and its pains? 
And I could, I could launch into a whole new preaching now, really. Uh, I'm not going to. Don't worry. But I do want to end by hinting uh, what I find to be three fundamental cries of hope that can be also expressed in how we live our lives as people of faith. And these, take them as invitations to live Advent throughout our whole lives. As we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There we pray for other ways of dealing with power. When we shape a language of kingdom into a language of prayer and faith, what does that do to us? And I'll be honest with you, I'm extremely uncomfortable with military language being used with faith. Historical reasons for my discomfort abound, and the world as well. But we can do it the other way around, can't we? When we're thinking about the advent of Christ in time and now. When we pray your kingdom come, may we pray for other ways of dealing with power. Ways that are ways of the servant Christ, ways that are ways of how he expresses himself in the Sermon of the Mount where this is immersed, ways in which we talk about dependence to grace rather than power being enforced over each other. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How does that change how we yearn for new structures, but also for new ways in which we express our own powers? We like to pretend we have none. And then we go out and we're consumers. We go out and we live our privileges. Right? We go out and we act entitled. This could go so many ways, right? As we pray, give us today our daily bread. In the time of the year in which we are being encouraged to consume as much as we possibly can. Can we yearn for, hope for, and try to live out in our daily lives an other way of dealing with resources? A way that doesn't suck out the resources of the world to its own destruction and each other's destruction a way that cares, a way that does not need to accumulate, but just wants to live. Give us today our daily bread that we may live. That we may live. Not that we may grow rich. Not that we may have more. Not that we may have more than, but that we may live, that we may eat that we may nurture our bodies and nurture each other. And what is more, give us today our daily bread, right? Not give me, give us. 
What does it look like to try to bring that reality into the world we live and hope for changes of it? How does that shape our life of faith? What does that advent of Christ in the world look like? Give us today our daily bread. Teach us to deal differently with our resources. Forgive us our sins. Matthew won't let us off the hook on this one, will he? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Matthew doubles down. Jesus means business here. <laughs> this is not rhetorical. Can we pray and hope for an advent into our lives, other ways of dealing with each other, of dealing with our differences, of dealing with the ways in which we hurt each other? Forgiveness is not the same as ignoring pain. It requires to recognize it. Forgiveness is not the same as letting perpetrators get a pass under abuse. It recognizes it and it names it. But forgiveness asks us to engage the pain of the world with grace to believe in redemption in our, for ourselves and for those around us. It asks that the grace we claim from Christ be the grace we live with towards each other. And I think if we, as a community of faith, because we Christians in the world, I'm going to dare to, you know, put us all in one umbrella here, you know, if we dare to live this cry and practice of Advent in our lives with just these three things, you know, pray them and try to Advent them into our lives, you know, to have them be expressions of the Christ who comes along, who is present. What a season of Advent could that be? If we could decorate the world with our acts of forgiveness and generosity, if we could light up the world with our willingness and courage to forgive at the same time as we deal with the issues of power, right? what a display of beauty would that be? That's why we pray, isn't it? Because we got to keep insisting. I'm not, you know, it, it can seem like we're oversimplifying. Like, oh, now we got it. So tomorrow it happens. No. Tomorrow we fail again. Then we pray again. And we try again. Tomorrow we walk on a road. Jesus talks to us. We don't even recognize him like the disciples to Emmaus. Suddenly it makes a bit of sense when we're breaking bread with each other. And then we're out the door again, stumbling, walking, trying to figure it out. 
and then we pray again. And then we meet and encourage each other again. But what we cannot do for the sake of our own souls and of the world we live in is to give up or to claim this to ourselves. Advent is today, it is tomorrow, it is in December, it is in January, it is in July. It is here in Hasdashirke, it is in Ukraine, it is in Ethiopia, it is in Bangladesh where they make our clothes. It is in the depth of the sea all the plastic floating around it is in the life of that person that you struggle so much to deal with that i struggle so much to deal with it is in our own brokenness isn't that where light is needed in the darkness may the lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world, serve the Lord, serve each other joyfully. Amen.